This podcast is a part of the Podmania Podcasting Network. Check out podmania.co.uk to check out more of our great podcasts, features, reviews, match ratings and previews spanning the crazy and diverse world of professional wrestling. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the From the Vault podcast, a fortnightly retro pay-per-view podcast hosted by myself, Rob Goodwin, and each of these shows are going to take a look back at the storied history of professional wrestling from a range of professional wrestling promotions from the WWF to WCW to TNA, even venturing into Japan to shows from All Japan and New Japan and the like but today today is the first episode and as it's wrestlemania season and we are approaching a wrestlemania week like we've never known with let's be honest little to no fanfare whatsoever i thought i'd come in and give you the first episode of the from the vault podcast we're going back to 1995 the 2nd of april 1995 to be exact from the hartford civic center in connecticut we are looking at WrestleMania 11, a rather infamous WrestleMania. It was in a really bad time for the WWF, a lot of cartoonish characters in the WWF. But what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to break down what it was like in that time, the sort of things that were happening at that time. Then we're going to run through the show itself, running through the matches, the backstage segments, and the celebrities that were involved in that show. And then we'll give sort of the aftermath and my thoughts on the show afterwards so without further ado let's load up the music for the first time on this podcast and i bring you the news report so all of this is taken from the wrestling observer newsletter the newsletter before wrestlemania 11 on the 27th of march 1995 so first of all we have big john studd famous perhaps as the man who won the inaugural Royal Rumble in 1989, passed away after a 17-month battle with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which he originally discovered whilst working an indie date and realising he had no stamina in the ring. After chemo treatments, it went into remission, but later returned. Upon finding out after running a 108-degree fever and suffering a collapsed lung, the doctor remarked he hadn't seen anyone live through so much and not suffer brain damage and told him he only had a week to live. It is believed that his well-publicised use of human growth hormone accelerated the onset of his cancer. The week before this, WCW had their uncensored 1995 pay-per-view, or as Dave Meltzer hilariously calls it, WCW should have been censored 1995. Oh, Dave. Dave, you wit. The show is notable for the first two matches getting negative stars from the big melts, but also the continuing decline of Ric Flair in the wake of Hogan's ego. The debut of the Ultimate Warrior wannabe, the Renegade, and the firing of Dustin Rhodes, Blacktop Bully, and road agent Mike Graham for the use of blading in their, let's face it, terrible King of the Road match. Even though Hogan had bladed just weeks before at a house show against Vader, with absolutely no repercussions. Sort of goes to show the state of WCW. Uh, Back to the WWF now, and Crush was fired, even though he had done nothing on TV in months and was effectively being paid 
to sit at home. Uh, this was after an eight-day investigation from authorities, after an intercepted package of 500 units of anabolic steroids were found addressed to him. After searching Crush's house, police found several unregistered handguns and drugs, including marijuana. WWF responded to this by firing him immediately. Lastly then, Lawrence Taylor, who of course infamously worked the main event of WrestleMania 11 against Bam Bam Bigelow, was fired as a sports analyst on TNT. He claims it was because of working WrestleMania, and TNT is owned by, of course, WCW owner Ted Turner. And that just about rounds off the news report, all of the wrestling news from the week of the 27th of March. So, WrestleMania 11, lots of you will know lots of little bits about the show. I was very similar. It's one of the WrestleManias that I've always seemed to miss out, um, you know, between the golden age of WrestleManias uh, to the Attitude Era. WrestleMania 11 always seems to be the one that's missed out. It's it's one that has, that has been reviewed as both the worst WrestleMania in history, and it's also been billed as the WrestleMania that saved the WWF. I don't agree with either of those. First of all, because WrestleMania 9 exists, and in a world where WrestleMania 9 exists, I don't think any other WrestleMania can be classed as the worst WrestleMania. And then, secondly, it's the WrestleMania that saved the WWF. Well, that's not technically true either, because after this, obviously you had the exodus of Scott Hall, or Razor Ramon as he was, in the WWF, and Kevin Nash, or Diesel. So two of your biggest stars have gone, and the WWF were in turmoil. You know, WrestleMania 12, the one after this was... It was known for two matches, really. The Iron Man match, and that ridiculously good street fight between Goldust and Rowdy Roddy Piper. So I wouldn't say that it was the one that saved the WWF. I, I think it's more the one that kept their heads afloat. But the background... So, we're based on feuds heading out of the 1995 Royal Rumble. The main storylines going in are the Million Dollar Corporation. I mean, they are at the centre of everything at WrestleMania uh, 11 with Bam Bam Bigelow starting that fight with Lawrence Taylor, who apparently was laughing at him whilst watching the show. Um, they then had a scuffle and that built towards that match. Rather than apologising, as he was advised, Bigelow issued a challenge for Mania, which Lawrence Taylor accepted, training with Diesel to get in shape for the match. Also returning was King Kong Bundy. Whoop. At the Royal Rumble, <laughs> he was attacking The Undertaker after his match with IRS, stealing the urn for the Million Dollar Corporation. Now... Aside from that, the other big storyline going into this was obviously for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship, currently on Diesel. Uh, he will be challenged by Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. So at Survivor Series 1994, the team of Diesel and Shawn Michaels dissolved after Shawn Michaels accidentally gave Diesel sweet chin music. Three days later, at a house show at Madison Square Garden, Diesel beat the champion Bob Backlund in just eight seconds to become the WWF World Heavyweight Champion. Fast forward uh, to January 1995 at the Royal Rumble and Shawn Michaels won, last eliminating the British Bulldog after that now infamous skinning of the cat and earning himself that shot at the belt against Diesel at WrestleMania 11. Something else picked up from the Royal Rumble was the Intercontinental Championship feud between Jeff Jarrett and Razor Ramon, with the current champion Jeff Jarrett getting the championship 
at the Royal Rumble. Uh, this is after Razor Ramon refused to win via countout, uh, was goaded back into the ring, um, and Jarrett then won with interference from the roadie, who we all know now as the Attitude Era's Road Dog. And then finally, the big, the other big storyline heading into this was Bret Hart and Bob Backlund, uh, who'd feuded on and off after the pair had fought over the WWF Championship in 1994. Uh, Bret had rolled up Backlund after he'd mistakenly thought he'd won. He then attacked Hart and turned heel. He then won the belt from Bret at Survivor Series 1994, of course, then dropping it, like I mentioned, on that house show at Madison Square Garden. And this is the, the aftermath of that feud. So that's all the information you need to know heading into this show. So let's dive straight in to WrestleMania 11. WrestleMania 11, the Hartford Civic Center, it's otherwise known as the XL Center today in Connecticut. It had an announced attendance of 16,305 people, reportedly a sellout, though if you watch this show, a lot of red seats are evident throughout. It had a buy rate of 1.3, which Dave Meltzer reports as extremely disappointing. This was down from 1.68 of WrestleMania 10, but it was up from the next year, WrestleMania 12, which only drew a 1.2 buy rate. Attendance was down from WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10 drew 18,065, and from WrestleMania 12 as well, which was 18,852. But again, people simply put that down to the smaller venue size. The event itself starts with the video package recapping the celebrities of former WrestleManias, but skipping over the classic matches they could have shown. And this really wound me up, because by this point, WrestleMania 11, we have had some of the most iconic WrestleMania matches. I mean, you're thinking Hogan versus Andre the Giant. You're thinking Hogan versus the Macho Man. Uh, Macho Man versus Ultimate Warrior in his retirement match. You are thinking... Um, anything you're thinking flair versus macho man and then even further the even the um wrestlemania beforehand you've got michaels versus razor and you've got owen versus brett but no 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 all they cared about was the celebrities which you sort of get as this wrestlemania is absolutely centered around two people and two people only those two people of course being lawrence taylor who as i mentioned before will be in the main event taking on bam bam bigelow and Pamela Anderson of Baywatch fame. Of course, we're then cutting two wrestlers, looking awkward with the proverbial who's who of 90s celebrities. So if you are a 90s child like myself, you are going to absolutely know these people. It's going to be a real roller coaster of childhood memories for you. So we have Pamela Anderson, who was, of course, famous for her time on Baywatch, famous for literally running very slowly. And that's a about as far as it went. Uh, we also had Jonathan Taylor Thomas from Home Improvement standing with the Allied Powers. Uh, MTV's Jennifer McCarthy avoiding the advances of Razor Ramon and the 123 Kid. Uh, Nick Totoro from NYPD Blue was standing and checking Undertaker's pulse for some bizarre reason. Uh, Son Pepper, famous for the song Push It, are rubbing Bret Hart. And finally, Diesel is in the locker room with Lawrence Taylor's all pro team and once that video package is rounded off uh, we head into 
The America the Beautiful, which this year was sung by Special Olympian Kathy Huey, uh, replacing the originally booked Fishbone, who I know absolutely nothing about. No quips. I literally know absolutely nothing about this band. I'm sure they're great, um, but they apparently weren't on this mania. Um, Kathy Huey did a really, really good job and was given a, a rightful, rousing round of applause come the end. We then cut to our commentary team. Our commentary team for this show are Vince McMahon and Jerry the King. Lawler Vince starts by thanking the loyal fans for sticking with them. Of course, this, of course, is the first Mania since the steroid trial, and he welcomes new fans before describing Mania as the standard of excellence in sports entertainment. The King adds that it's pageantry, Hollywood, an event fit for a King where two worlds collide, the NFL and the WWF. Um, so heading into this first match, nothing, nothing mentioned about the card. Uh, we had sort of little pointers towards the main event from King with the NFL and WWF comment, but other than that, the WWF were only advertising the celebrities. And I thought that was... I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like it should always be about the match. If you're running a wrestling company, whether it's classed as sports entertainment or an outright wrestling company, you need to build your biggest card of the year, even with the limited roster of WWF in 1995. You need to build your mania around your matches, um, around all your matches, not just one with an NFL player in it. I mean, Sean versus Diesel in the package got absolutely nothing. And I just, I, it really ground my gears to start off with. It really did. However, we go into our first match with the Allied Powers, the tag team of Lex Luger and Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, versus the Blue Brothers, Jacob and Eli Blue, who I'll be perfectly honest, apart from very recently watching the Royal Rumble 1995 and seeing one of them, or both of them, because they look very similar, uh, appearing in the Royal Rumble match, I knew absolutely nothing about these. But on further research, they're more famously known perhaps as Skull and Eight Ball of the DOA stable, and as the Harris Brothers from WCW, or they're famous for TNA uh, where they were minions of Vince Russo in his ill-fated stable sports entertainment extreme. They loved a stable, didn't they? God grief, that's a terrible name. Sports entertainment extreme. Jesus, that's awful name. <laughs> uh, they came out uh, accompanied by Uncle Zabakaya, or as he's known to most wrestling fans uh, of the modern age, Zeb Coulter or Dutch Mantel. Uh, Blues Brothers attack before the bell, but the Allied Powers quickly gain momentum with some stereo power slams and stereo lariats. It's here is the first real time that it's noticeable that Luger is a step behind Davy Boy Smith during this tandem tag team offense. Davy Boy Smith is crisp, he's into those moves quickly, they feel impactful, whereas Luger felt like he was going through the motions here. And obviously we all know that he would turn up in WCW on that first episode of Nitro in October of this year. And you could it's a big, big decline for Luger. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Davey Boy Smith keeps the momentum for a while, but Blue Brothers attempt some twin magic. Yes, the Blue Brothers started this well before the Bella Twins. Um, it doesn't help that Vince and King couldn't tell which one of them was which. And that made it very difficult for anyone who was doing this as a review or taking notes to know which one was which either. So I did feel a little bit sorry for the referee. Um, but whereas King 
I felt was doing this as part of story and I genuinely feel like Vince couldn't tell them apart in real life I feel like that's an actual thing uh, Lex and Eli then remonstrate on the outside uh, meaning the ref misses Davy Boy Smith rolling up Jacob and then misses which blue brother is legal at all um, they then get some heat on Davy Boy for a while he then finally manages to get the hots or mild shall we say tag to Luger who then attacks Eli um, after Eli goes for a second rope elbow drop but takes an extortionate amount of time performing it uh, Lex lays in with his trademark strikes and lariats and then hits a flying forearm we think that's over but Uncle Zebekiah gets onto the apron and distracts the ref while twin magic happens again the new blue brother who the hell knows who's in at this point kicks out at two um, and gets heat on Luger moving in towards the allied powers corner for a powerbomb and this bit the ending sequence I really really enjoyed um, he gets Luger in the powerbomb position but Davy Boy has hit a blind tag he performs a sunset flip over the top of Luger and onto the miscellaneous blue brother to get the three count at six minutes and 34 seconds now as for my own personal thoughts on this match, this got half a star from Meltzer. Um, there was perhaps a few too many shenanigans in a relatively nothing match. Um, Davy Boy looked brilliant and was the standout by far in this match. He was amazingly over with this crowd, um, with Luger paling in comparison. Really, it's a shame when you consider when you consider where he was, you know, nineteen ninety three been pegged as the next Hogan, the next face of the company, and now he's put into effectively a nothing tag team. Now, marks a remarkable descent for Luger, again, who would ultimately leave for WCW in October. Run of the mill, inoffensive match, nothing really to mention. Otherwise, it's not a match you are going to remember, even straight after it, to be perfectly honest. Um, there's patriotic fireworks exploding in the ring as the Allied powers pose. Uh, JR catches up on the ramp, which is something that is key and very, very... It's all over the place in this show. JR is constantly on the ramp catching up with all the time the people who have lost. Never the people who've won, always the people who've lost. And it's something I hate even now because they do it in the ring and they've got to cut a promo even though they've just wrestled a match. And this this right here is why I hate it because JR catches up to Uncle Zebakaya on the ramp and attempts to interview him. After which Zebekiah cuts this completely inaudible promo about the Allied Powers pinning the wrong guy. Everything else is completely inaudible because A, he's shouting, B, he's walking off, and C, he's just been in a match even though he wasn't working the match. He's still been a part of it, he's still been running up and down and jumping and being a part, you know, being an outside part of the match. It just, I hate it when people do it, and I hated it when JR did it during this pay per view, and it is something that is constantly after each maths I'm sorry after each match the commentary team then throw to Nick Tortoro who is being used as a backstage hand which is fine by me because he's better than Todd Pettingill uh, he is supposedly with Pamela Anderson but we'll never know if he actually was because none of the audio was working a completely mute promo with all of them mouthing and no sound coming out whatsoever uh, Jenny McCarthy turns up as opposed to Pamela Anderson, as the pair continue to mouth, until he cuts back to Vince and King. Really awkward promo, made slightly more awkward 
by Vince uttering an ominous, li- an ominous line about how you never can tell what will happen in the WWF or to our crack audio team. Jesus, Vince, you would not want to be the person who forgot to turn on the audio for that promo. Jesus Christ. Um, King takes the time that presumably would have been this promo. Uh, takes time to mock American football again um, as we wait for the next match, saying that it's 11 men spending hours trying to move something very small. He says it's like the post office. His humour doesn't get any better, folks. We move on to match two then, and it's the Intercontinental Championship, a rematch from the Royal Rumble 1995 with the current champion Jeff Jarrett with his friend the Roadie taking on Razor Ramon with his bodyguard? One, two, three, kid. Uh, we cut back to the aforementioned Rumble to show how the Roadie's interference caused Razor to drop the title to Jarrett in the first place, which was a chop block to the knee, which meant Razor couldn't hit the Razor's edge and consequently got rolled up by Jarrett. Um, as Jarrett and the roadie enter and Jarrett struts and all that sort of jazz, uh, we cut backstage to Razor and the 1-2-3 kid, who proceeds to cut an absolutely abysmal promo, made even more abysmal by the fact that WWF still hadn't sorted the sound out, which meant that it sounded like it was coming from underneath a damn sink. Uh, he's saying that the roadie better keep his nose out or the kid is going to take care of him. He's never been that good on the mic, has he, Sean Mortman? Jesus. Uh, Razor hits the ring and attacks Jarrett before the bell and spends a long period in charge at the start of the match. Tossing Jarrett about, getting a close two-count with a roll-up before the roadie saves Jeff from the Razor's edge. Again, calling back to the Royal Rumble 95. There's a lot of callback spots during this match, which I really like. Um, Like this, for example, where Jarrett attempts to leave, but is cut off by the imposing presence that is the 1-2-3 kid. Um, Jarrett decides that it's safer to go back into the ring to face Razor Ramon than to face 1-2-3 kid. Um, JJ crotches himself on the rope, and Razor slams the roadie's head into the ring post. Throughout this... Vince and King are making reference to the weak knee of Razor. Don't forget, that's the knee that the roadie targeted in the Royal Rumble 1995. But Jarrett doesn't go for it. Instead, he spends time making drop kicks and what must be described as a lovely-looking swinging netbreaker. Um, Ramon misses a bulldog from the top rope, which looked horrendous, the bump he took for it, um, before Jeff finally locks in the figure four. Um, Razor's in it for ages, but eventually manages to reverse the pressure. The match continues, and both men are on the top rope, with Razor hitting an avalanche side suplex from the top rope. But rather than going for the pinfall, and this is another real inconsistency in this match, rather than going for the pinfall, he gets Jarrett up for the Razor's edge, bearing in mind he's got a weak knee and he's just been in the figure four for ages. I, I didn't understand this part of the match. You have just hit an avalanche side suplex from the top rope. Jarrett is on the mat. He's gone. He's out. Why would you pick him up for a move that involves a, an, a bad knee? Why Why would you do that? It makes absolutely no sense. Anyway, he goes up for the raise edge, but the roadie slides in to chop block the knee again, giving Razor the DQ win at 13 minutes and 32 seconds. So even though Razor Ramon wins, Jarrett keeps the belt. Um, Jarrett and the roadie 
set up on Razor, but one, two, three kid, being the hero that he is, attempts to clean house. An absolute melee ensues before the match is eventually called. So this match got two and three quarter stars from Meltzer. It was a solid match. I didn't think it was as good as the Royal Rumble counterpart. Um, it was a strange finish, um, but with a lack of star power on the roster, I mean, I don't really suppose there was anyone else to push for that title until Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam. I mean, who are you going to push? Mantar? Duke the Dumpster Drozzy? Sparky Plug? Uh, the ir interference irritated more than the Royal Rumble match as well. Um... They seem to be overselling it massively, and whereas in the Rumble it, it made sense with the roadie, I felt like they focused too much on it when there was the one, two, three kid as well. Um, and just something that really irritates me is when the limb isn't brought properly into the storyline. I feel like Jarrett needed to target the knee earlier on because the commentary team actually did a really good job of selling it and Vince doesn't always do that so take advantage take advantage of the fact that Vince actually knows what the hell he's on about I mean he did call a lot of moves what a maneuver in this match it was really obvious but apart from that he did a really good job uh, Jarrett replete with a bloody nose that he somehow got presumably at the hands of the imposing one two three kid and the roadie eventually escape uh, of course they can't get to the back without being attacked by JR, who attempts to interview Jarrett, saying that his conduct is unbecoming of a champion. Jarrett replies that he's always been a champion and tells Razor that payback is a you-know-what. That's not me censoring myself, that's genuinely what he said. A payback for what? Absolutely no idea, because Razor, as far as I can tell, had done nothing wrong. Um, we then go back to the exact same Nick Tortoro segment, except this time we're blessed with sound. Um, clearly the threat from Vince had got through. This time he's joined again by Jenny McCarthy, but um, then Shawn Michaels and Sid enter as well. God bless Sid. Uh, Shawn quips that not only will he enter with Pamela Anderson, but he will more importantly leave with the championship and Pamela Anderson. Wink, wink. Uh, Sid then absolutely screams a promo about fear leading to Diesel feeling sick and how his dreams have turned to nightmares. Uh, the camera cut, then cuts back to Sean, but all you can hear is Sid just periodically screaming nightmares and dreams turn to nightmares. <clears throat> he wasn't the best promo, but good God, he was entertaining. Match three then, uh, we go to <clears throat> one of the lesser talked about Undertaker WrestleMania matches with The Undertaker with Paul Bearer taking on King Kong Bundy with Ted DiBiase. And there is a reason this match is not talked about in the annals of Undertaker streak history. And you'll find out why in a minute. Uh, Ted DiBiase enters with Bundy first, holding the urn they stole at the Royal Rumble 1995. Uh, King says that Bundy has the quickest WrestleMania pinfall victory, which he did at the time, a 25-second win at the inaugural WrestleMania against Special Delivery Jones which is a nice bit of WrestleMania trivia for you. We then cut to Tom Pettingill, sorry, Todd Pettingill in the audience, uh, who is annoying former Chicago Bear Neil Anderson, uh, asking him about the main event of Lawrence Taylor versus Bam Bam Bigelow before making the poor man get into a three-point stance. Go away, you stupid irritant. Thank goodness for the dong of the bell that announced Undertaker's arrival. Um, at this point, Taker was three and zero in the fledgling years of the streak. Uh, he'd beaten Snooker 
at WrestleMania 7. He'd beaten Jake the Snake at WrestleMania 8, and he'd beaten Gonzalez in a WrestleMania Classic at WrestleMania 9. Now, I don't know what Undertaker had done to piss off Booker's between 1993 and 1995, but to give him Gonzalez and Bundy in two consecutive WrestleManias, fucking hell. Jesus Christ. It's true what they say, that the streak didn't really kick off until 17 against Triple H. Good grief. So Taker starts hot, but can't take Bundy off his feet because Bundy is massive. Uh, It takes a series of lariats, an old school, as we now know it, but it wasn't called that then, and another flying clothesline to eventually take Bundy off his feet. Uh, Bundy then tamely clotheslines Taker over the top rope, where he lands on his feet. He takes the urn from DiBiase, protecting presenting it to a clearly overjoyed Paul Bearer, and the pair pose with it. Karma then comes in to ruin the party at the behest of DiBiase, because no party is complete with Karma. He then kicks Bearer in the stomach, takes the urn back up the ramp. I can't help feeling all these shenanigans were to take away from the fact that Bundy was damn near immobile at this point. It, it was it was appalling. Um Sure enough, he tries to get to the bat, but can't because his way is blocked by Jim Ross. So a picture-in-picture interview during the match takes place, which sees Karma tell Jim Ross that the urn was his now, and he intended to melt it down into a chain. Yep, this actually happened. Uh, Meanwhile, Bundy has briefly moved from the strikes to a body slam, followed by a knee drop, which gets a two count. Those are the only two moves that Bundy does during this match. Um, at this point, Taker has clearly had enough. He powers out of the corner, hits the strikes and a body slam, which, admittedly, not easy, and then a leaping clothesline to tamely end a tame match at 6 minutes and 36 seconds. Bundy was awful here. His comically poor selling, plus the fact that they'd had to have an entire urn story to detract from the fact he couldn't move and the Undertaker couldn't hit the tombstone on him means it is well worth the 0.5 stars that Meltzer gave it. Um, It's not a match from Taker's streak that will live long in the memory, that's for sure. I mean, I have the DVDs of the streak when they released it as a box set after the Lesnar loss, and (laughs) it's one of the only ones that hasn't been watched. Um, Even Gonzalez has laugh factor it's you know it's that bad it's comical this was just bad and it was boring not not a good look at all for taker backstage we cut back to nick tortoro who's still looking for pamela anderson but instead of finding her he finds the all pro bowl team who call out the individual members of the million dollar corporation in some of the worst promos i've ever seen all saying the same thing you know where we are come and find us uh, in varying degrees of woodenness. Uh, amongst them, by the way, future WCW man Stephen McMichael. There you go. A little bit of trivia again for you. Totoro then bursts in on a chess match going on between Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Bob Backlund, of course. Uh, Backlund has no idea who Pamela Anderson even is and is then infuriated when Taylor Thomas beats him. He says that's what's wrong with the youth of America today and proceeds to pop quiz the small child on the 34th president of the United States and the capital of Honduras, amongst other things, all of which he gets right, which infuriates Backland 
even more. We cut back to the ring now, and Owen Hart is out. He has a surprise partner for the World Tag Team Championship match that he has been teasing for weeks. Now, a little bit of an interesting fact. Before this show took place, the original mystery partner was first going to be Jim Neidhart, um, but he got fired for no-showing some uh, live events. And then it was due to be future World Heavyweight Champion Chris Benoit. There you go. However, it is neither of those two. Owen, Owen uh, introduces the person, the mystery person, as a man who defeated his brother at WrestleMania, and it will be a huge surprise. Really emphasize the huge in that. And sure enough, out comes Yokozuna, after months out trying to shed pounds. And after these months of trying to shed those pounds, he comes back even bigger. This man is absolutely enormous he is weighing in at over 600 pounds at this point which is quite frankly astonishing that he is even moving at that weight never mind performing in a match um he gets a great pop though for his return which is nice and he's accompanied to the ring by jim Cornette and mr fuji uh, cut backstage then to interview the tag champs the smoking guns uh, Billy Gunn says it didn't matter about Yoko. They're going to win anyway. While Bart stares at his hands, stumbles over his promo, and then is clearly timed out as we cut back to the ring and Vince cuts in over him. Good stuff, Bart. Uh, lukewarm reception to the smoking guns on their entrance, though Yokozuna does attempt to help them by garnering cheap heat, waving the Japanese flag. He was born in California. The match itself follows the same pattern a lot of Yoko and Owen matches ultimately would. Teams getting heat on Owen, who in this match was by far the standout man. If Davy Boy Smith was the standout of the first match, Owen was the standout of this one. Before Yokozuna comes in for brief bursts of power. And I cannot emphasise the word brief enough. Um, Owen is double teamed for large portions of the opening salvo of this match. He's hit with an assisted neckbreaker and a sidewinder, but Yokozuna distracts the referee enough for Owen to kick out of the sidewinder at two. Uh, Yoko's kicked in, uh, sorry, tagged in, and hits a really snug-looking leg drop on the back of Billy Gunn's head. Looked incredibly nasty. Um, one thing I will say, though, despite his size and quite clearly growing fatigue, he Yokozuna did bump very, very well here for the tag team champs. Um... That's one thing that I think most people who worked with him said. You know, he was easy to work with. Eventually, Yokozuna, probably realising that his legs were about to give out, hits a body slam on Billy, drags him to the corner, and hits the Banzai drop. Uh, Bart breaks up the pin on two, where Yokozuna, now thoroughly gassed, back body drops him out of the ring. Owens tagged in, thinks about going for the sharpshooter, but after hearing the pop the move was getting, he transitioned into a pin, for the victory at 9 minutes and 42 seconds. What a heel. Um, Owen and Yoko are obviously your new tag team champions. Owen grabs the belts from the referee, but Yokozuna at this point is too tired to celebrate or to even take the belt to begin with. He's got his back to Owen. He's draped over the top rope in their corner. He's absolutely exhausted, and unfortunately he gets, it gets no better. For the poor man, he only gets bigger and more out of shape. Um, 
which is ironic because just as that happens, Jim Cornette likens his return to that of NBA's Michael Jordan. Wow. Uh, this match gets two stars from Meltzer. Um, forgettable, really, as were the smoking guns. Uh, Yokozuna looked terrifying at the size he was, as I've already mentioned. And um, again, unfortunately, would only proceed to get bigger. Uh, while the limbo Owen Hart found himself was absolutely astonishing. For a man of his talent, coming off of the great 1994, he had winning King of the Ring, um, opening WrestleMania on one of the greatest matches in WrestleMania history against Bret, and then having a similarly great match against Bret at SummerSlam of that year. Easily the best match of that show as well. To then be thrown into Tag Team Limbo. Yes, admittedly getting the Tag Team Championships, but even then, the WWF didn't care about the Tag Team Championships. It's, yeah, it's baffling. I must admit, I did enjoy the Owen Hart-Yokozuna Tag Team. Um, it did have a good dynamic, but this wasn't thrown together because they had a good dynamic. This was thrown together because you needed to give Owen something to do and you needed to give Yokozuna something to do on his return. This this wasn't done on purpose. This just happened to work. Uh, Todd Pettengill is annoying Bam Bam Bigelow backstage. Um, Bam Bam likens his opponent, Lawrence Taylor, to a flash in the pan and says he will not be known as the man who lost to an NFL player. Ah, how about that foreshadowing? Because it's true. Unfortunately, in WWF at least, that is what Bam Bam Bigelow is known for. Search your hearts. You know it to be true. Uh, straight in to match five, which was the I Quit match between Bret Hart and Bob Backlund, with, for some baffling reason that was never really explained, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper came out first uh, to referee the match to by far the biggest pop of the night. Uh, no music for Bob Backlund, though, and enormous booze for him, which is unfortunate, seeing as this was basically a homecoming. Conversely, absolutely astronomical pop for Brett, who eclipses even Roddy's uh, pop. Absolutely, he's really, really over, over at this point. So basically, this was a submission match with Brett trying to lock in the sharpshooter and Bob trying to hit the chicken wing. Um, Rowdy Roddy Piper's sole aim in this match was to annoy people. And I'll sure sort of go into that in a minute. Brett starts in charge, wrapping Bob up in the ropes. Um, he, Roddy Piper, then runs towards him with a microphone saying, what do you say? And that was all he did. All match, every three or four seconds. Um, it becomes very, very annoying, very, very quickly. There's one moment where it's funny, and that's where Bret Hart is working the leg of Bob Backlund, and he asks Bob, what do you say? Uh, Bob makes some manner of ridiculous noise that I assume means no. Uh, he then looked at Brett and went, Brett, and Brett laughs. That that was the one moment of comedy that comes for this. Otherwise, bloody hell, how shrill. Um, Bob keeps managing to reverse out of the sharpshooter. Uh, we've got two very contrasting styles. Obviously, Brett is working the legs, the knees, to try and soften Bob up for the sharpshooter, whereas Backlund is working the arms with a series of arm bars and the shoulder to try and soften him up for the chicken wing. Um, however, after Bob has got his foothold 
in the match. Hart rallies with another sharpshooter attempt, but runs at Backlund and misses, hitting the post shoulder first. Uh, Backlund attempts to lock in the chicken wing, but doesn't quite get all of it. Uh, Brett reverses it then into his own chicken wing, causing Bob to make an ungodly noise that we were supposed to interpret as him quitting at 9 minutes and 35 seconds, giving Brett the win. Um, I can't begin to describe the noise that comes out of Bob's face. Um, I highly recommend you YouTube it. It's hilarious, um, but it's certainly not I quit. JR, the serial irritant, catches up with Backland as he heads back up the ramp. Um, who simply states that he's seen the light and leaves. Okay. Um, this was this was awful. Um, Meltzer gave it one and a quarter stars, and for me, it's, that's, that is too high. Um, Brett would go on to write in his autobiography that it was his worst pay-per-view match ever. And I find it really hard to disagree, really, Brett. And that's even taking WrestleMania 26 into account. Backstage with Nick Totoro, again, who claims that Pamela Anderson has in fact left the building, but other arrangements have been made. We then get our procession of celebrities with special guest timekeeper being the apparent chess prodigy Jonathan Taylor Thomas and the special guest ring announcer being the aforementioned Nick Totoro, who was already on this show far too much. This was all, of course, in preparation for the WWF Championship match between Diesel and Shawn Michaels. Michaels is out first with his bodyguard Sid and Jennifer McCarthy in tow rather than Pamela Anderson to a pop that drowns out the entire end of Tortoro's sentence, which is beautiful. Uh, we then cut to Todd Pettingill, who's interviewing Diesel, who cuts a promo where he stumbles over the word retain for a couple of awkward seconds before making up for this by screaming Psycho Sid-like for the remainder of the promo. Um, awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Um, he then comes out to another bib pop, uh, one that I wouldn't really associate with Diesel's critically panned title run. Uh, he's accompanied by Pamela Anderson, though, which probably helped Diesel's pop, if I'm being honest. Heading into the match, Sean sells brilliantly for Diesel to start with, uh, with the story early on being that Diesel could beat Sean easily in the power department, so Sean would have to grind him down and basically outrun him. Michaels does take some awful bumps, um, especially to the outside. There was one where he lands on his shoulders, and then there's one where he slides through or falls through the bottom two ropes and just lands horrendously on his neck and shoulder. Looked really, really bad. And Michaels does gain the ascendancy by clotheslining himself and Diesel out of the ring and tries to capitalise with a diving cross body from the top rope to the outside, a splash from the apron to the floor, uh, the top rope bulldog that Razor Ramon had previously missed, and a back elbow drop from the second rope, but still Diesel kicked out and was getting undeniable Diesel chance at this point. He was over. Uh, Diesel then powers out of two DDT attempts, but Michaels continues to grind him down with a sleeper hold in the middle of the ring after having worked the back with knees. Diesel finally gains back momentum by driving elbows into Sean in the corner of the ring and diving and sorry, driving forearms 
into him, using his tights to keep him tethered to him, constantly bringing him back like a tetherball and slapping his head with forearms. Uh, both men end up on the outside, and Sid, who has been fairly inconspicuous at this time, uh, distracts Earl Hebner, which eventually works against Sean as the ref misses the sweet chin music and resulting pinfall. Sid attempts to make amends for this by taking the turnbuckle pad off and pointing it out to Michaels, but he can't capitalise on it. Uh, Michael goes to the top, but Diesel catches him in a sidewalk slam. This was beautiful, seamless from Diesel. Really, really well thought out spot. Diesel then slingshots Sean into the exposed turnbuckle as he hits the infamous jackknife powerbomb that Sean refuses to sell properly for the win and to retain. That's the word you were looking for earlier, Kev, in your promo. Um, he retains his WWF Championship at 20 minutes and 32 seconds. Four stars from Meltzer, easily the match of the night. Sean made Diesel look great, apart from Sean being Sean during the final jackknife. And Diesel had that landmark win finally in his title reign. It's something that his title reign certainly needed. Uh, it's a shame about the rest of it. Mabel. Um, the storyline that this moved on was good, and it was probably the only match where the interference isn't gratingly overbearing. It found that balance, which every other match had struggled to find, between being off-putting and story-progressing. Plus, you know, an additional bonus, Nash made it through a match without tearing his quad. So, you know, well done. Post-match, Sid screams at JR that Shawn Michaels isn't finished with Diesel, and that this isn't over. Uh, meanwhile, Pamela Anson gets into the ring to celebrate with the champion, who also invites Jennifer McCarthy and Nick Totoro into the ring to celebrate with him as well. Uh, Pat and Gill is backstage because apparently one promo with Sean isn't enough. Uh, with Sean and Sid, they replayed that super kick and the missed pinfall. Sid then stumbles over some manner of convoluted softball slash baseball reference about the need for two referees and umpires, and Sean bemoans that he had Diesel out colder than a block of ice, that he proved he was the best, and that he will do it again if Diesel is man enough to face him. Main event time, match seven, Bam Bam Bigelow and the Million Dollar Corporation versus Lawrence Taylor and his all-pro team with Pat Patterson as special guest referee. Second random special guest, special guest referee spot that I don't really understand. Uh, Vince takes over the announcing duties for this, probably to show off his NFL knowledge, um, but first introduce the Million Dollar Corporation. Uh, they're all out there, Bundy, Tatanka, Volkov, IRS, and finally DiBiase. Uh, the All-Pro team then come out and are introduced with all their stats from Encyclopedia Vince. Uh, Ken Norton Jr., Chris Spielman, Ricky Jackson, Carl Banks, Steve, Mongo, McMichael, and the captain, Reggie White. Um, Karma, Tatanka, and Bundy are then all knocked off of the apron by the All-Pro team. What a fantastic look for wrestling this is. Uh, Bam Bam and Taylor make their way to the ring and face off. Taylor gets enormous chance of LT, really, really over with this crowd. Uh, Bam Bam pushes LT and he responds by slapping him across the face and then Taylor explodes into the start of this match with stiff jumping forearms that are almost like lariats, proper smashing Bigelow in the face and then hits a huge bulldog to Bigelow. 
Uh, Bam Bam rolls out to try and get away. He's then confronted by Taylor, who literally vaulted the top rope onto the floor to face off with the Million Dollar Corporation. Quite impressive, that feat, I'm not going to lie. Both men roll in as the Corporation face off with the All-Pro team, and it is all Bigelow from here on in. Uh, he works the back, he works the legs with a Boston Crab and different modifications of that before laying into Taylor with a series of falling headbutts. He, lasts a he lands a twisting moonsault, which it looks horrendous, mostly because it looks like his knee connects with LT's head. Um, but they do sell that because he then can't make the pinfall straight away because he's hurt his knee. Eventually, he managed to scramble over, uh, but LT is able to kick out at two at this point. Bam Bam is then in control before ascending again to the top rope and hitting a diving headbutt, which again... Taylor kicks out of at two, and it's at this point that Bam Bam is looking desperate. He's been cocky and arrogant to this point. It's at this point that he realizes that Taylor is not going down without a fight. Taylor rallies and hits a jackknife, which Bam Bam kicks out of at two. Just he hits a side suplex and a series of those great looking forearms. Uh, with Bam Bam rattled, he then goes to the top rope and hits a final diving forearm smash and covers Bigelow for the win in 11 minutes and 42 seconds. Yes, the NFL player who hasn't had one single day wrestling experience in the ring, aside from training, has beaten Bam Bam Bigelow in the main event. Now, you can certainly see why the WWF would do this. Big pop and send the crowd home happy. However, there wasn't that much of a pop for the victory, especially judging from the chance during the match of LT, LT. But the crowd seemed a little subdued, and there was definitely a few whistles and, like, whispers of boos. The crowd didn't seem 100% happy that the NFL player had gone over the WWF superstar, because I think everyone had just assumed that Bigelow was going over, and... To be perfectly honest, Bigelow going over would have been the correct call, in my honest opinion. Again, JR is there to catch up to Bam Bam on the ramp, who doesn't say anything, um, partly because he's been chastised by Ted DiBiase for embarrassing him, the corporation, and the wrestling industry in general. Um, whilst back in the ring, LT has been held up by his posse and his son. Now, according to reports from Jim Cornette, and Rowdy Roddy Piper, Taylor was that blown up from this match. He could hardly speak or stand when he got backstage. Apparently, he'd really, really underestimated the stamina that it needed for a match, especially one in the main event and one that's so highly charged. Um, this match was far better than it had any right to be. Meltzer gives it two and three-quarter stars, and Bigelow deserves all the credit in the world for making Taylor look as good as he did. Um, and was it right to make the de um, decision to embarrass Bam Bam for the sake of a cheap pop that ultimately wasn't that big? Um, well, if you believe rumours, Bam Bam's payout was a quarter of a million dollars for taking this, so I imagine he wasn't overly bothered about this. Um, personally, you know, it didn't gain anything. Um, obviously, you had the storyline of Bam Bam then leaving the Million Dollar Corporation, which I'll get to in a moment. But was it worth Bam Bam's you know, main event 
of WrestleMania being spoiled by an NFL linebacker. Who knows? Who knows? I'll let you make that decision for yourself. Um, so that, in a nutshell, was WrestleMania 11. Now, in the aftermath of all of this, uh, Diesel did offer Sean his rematch. Um, furious at Sid, though, he did tell him he wouldn't be needed, which led to Sid attacking Sean and Diesel saving him leading to a babyface turn for Sean. Uh, Diesel would ultimately lose the WWF title at Survivor Series 95 to Bret Hart, while Sean would win his second Rumble in a row in 96 to set up the 60-minute Iron Match main event for the championship at WrestleMania 12. Bigelow, embarrassed by his loss to Taylor, would try to regain some credibility by challenging Diesel for the championship, but he would then ultimately lose when Tatanka turned on him and he was ejected from the Million Dollar Corporation, leading to matches on the first two in-your-house pay-per-views, which followed this WrestleMania. Razor Ramon and Jarrett would continue to feud and flip-flop the title with each other on the house show circuit in May, in the run-up to SummerSlam 1995, before Razor and Sean had their less famous, but no less ingenious, second Intercontinental Championship ladder match. Uh, Karma did follow through on his threat to melt Undertaker's urn and turned it into a necklace with the pair fighting in a dark match on In Your House 1 before two consecutive casket matches between the pair at In Your House 2 and SummerSlam 1995. How many casket matches is too many casket matches? Um, though initially losing their rematch for the titles, the Smoking Guns would eventually usurp the team of Owen and Yokozuna on Raw in September 1995 to regain the championships. And finally, Steve Mongo McMichael would become part of WCW in late 1995, first as a subpar colour commentator with a dog, then as a competitor where he was, for some unknown reason that still baffles the wrestling community today, became part of the Four Horsemen and a one-time WCW United States heavyweight champion. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. WrestleMania 11 in a nutshell. Was it as bad as people make out? It's not a great show. It's a relatively boring show. Sean and Diesel is by far the great match. The greatest match on this card. Um, the Bam Bam Lawrence Taylor match was far better, as I've already said, than it had any right to be and there was flashes of brilliance from Owen and Davy Boy but nothing before the Brett the nothing sorry before the Sean match even Bret Hart's match was worth watching you could just snip this down to the two main events and to be perfectly honest you know if it was a match between two wrestlers in that main event would it have gotten the praise it's gotten probably not and again that's still shrouded in you know contention because people don't think that Bam Bam should have lost, which, again, I don't think he should have done. Um, nevertheless, that was WrestleMania 11. Thank you so much for listening at home. I'll be bringing these again to you fortnightly. Join me in the next episode of From the Vault when I will be reviewing WCW Wrestle Wars 1992. Uh, in the meantime, please check out the Twitter at From the Vault pod uh, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts whether that be apple Podcasts, spotify uh, google podcasts um, stitcher we are everywhere so please 
check it out. You can talk to me on Twitter at, at @realrobgoodin if you want to discuss the pay-per-view. Please leave a like, a comment, and please give us a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and I'll talk to you guys again soon.